This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the executive producer and co-host of the show. Joining me in the virtual studio is co-founder and principal co-host Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC. Pop Health Week engages industry leadership and stakeholder voices spanning payer, provider, patient, vendor, and regulatory communities in population health best practices and strategy. Connect with us via www.popupstudio.productions or follow and direct message me on Twitter via at GregMastersMPH. And that's Greg with two G's. On today's show, our guest is colleague and a transformational voice for innovation that matters via incrementalism. Nick Vanterhaden, MD, a.k.a. Dr. Nick, is a principal in the Washington, D.C. office of ECG Management Consultants and a popular voice in the Healthcare Now radio lineup of hosts. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Thanks so much, Greg and Nick. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We've been doing this for a while. And we're today, I think we're going to talk about something that's sort of near and dear to both of our hearts in a sense, because we both seem to be involved in studies or clinical trials. You, you, you said near and dear. I thought you were going to go straight to whiskey, but okay, we can talk <laughs> clinical trials. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. why is it near and dear? Well, a couple of things from my perspective. Personally, uh, I, I, as a clinician, was desperate for the data. I was desperate for patients. In fact, even in medical school, I was looking for trial participants. I did two particular studies. One is uh, looking at orthostatic hypertension. What's that? Well, that's if you stand up, your blood pressure goes down. I was looking at it as an indicator in pregnant women to see if we could predict those women that were going to have preeclampsia, so they would develop hypertension, and could we measure their blood pressure? And I was desperate. Actually, it was kind of interesting. A lot of patients were willing. I guess it wasn't too much interaction, intervention. You know, they just had to have their blood pressure. But, you know, it's a time commitment as much as anything else. Um, and I've, I've had some others as well. But then I've grown older. Actually, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with that era. As a medical student, I was paid to be in clinical trials, and that was some of the way that I funded my way through medical school. Down at um, uh, the market near St. Thomas's Hospital, there was a professional clinical trials organization, and the first trial I did as a volunteer, I got paid for, I had to have five hours with an NG tube, a nasogastric tube, into my stomach, and they kept uh, taking uh, samples and were seeing if the drug that they were giving was reducing my um, uh, acid production. And it was the most enlightening experience, and it made me so sympathetic to patients. So that is that like having... giving your body yes. to science, right? Selling, selling my body to science was how we saw it. And it was filled with medical students and, you know, clinical folks. That was really their, their major source of uh, individuals. Income? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it was pretty good money, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Which... I, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe in this day and age that might not be acceptable, but it was at the time. It was they, all covered. Yeah, they still do that. Yeah. They still get paid for some of this stuff. So I know you've also been in one more recently, perhaps? Yeah, so I, I'm actually a volunteer in one um, uh, looking at uh, serolimus or rapamycin, which is a drug used in um, 
transplant surgery as an immunosuppressant. And it also, uh, by virtue of its method of action, has some interesting uh, input or uh, impact on longevity. And there is a question over this and a number of other drugs. Can we treat aging as a disease? And if so, is this one of the drugs uh, that we could do? Now, those in the medical profession will know this is a pretty significant drug. You know, you know, you give this to a renal transplant patient to suppress the immune system so that you don't get uh, the rejection uh, that is the big fear, one of the big fears with uh, renal transplant patients. And I'm sure those listening that maybe don't have the clinical background or, or you know, not all the information can probably recognize that's a pretty powerful drug. And to be taking that, um, you know, might cause some problems. That's part of the process. So this is a very early stage trial. They're looking at dosing to see if they can find a small enough dose that doesn't induce uh, some of the potential side effects, but still generate some of the positive effects that we see with them. And you did this because you're really interested in longevity, as you say, or I would say longevity, uh, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all right, Fred, let's go straight to my uh, uh, alternative pronunciation. Well, mine might be the one that's obviously incorrect. No, you might be right. Who, who knows? <laughs> I have lots of them and I'm always in trouble for them, but that's okay. Um, yes, I am. I, I, I think... I, I buy into the notion that aging is a disease and if we focus on that and focus on preventing the underlying cellular degeneration, we can prevent many of the diseases that we see as chronic uh, occurrences. You know, that would include the likes of cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, uh, neurodegenerative type sure. things. At, at diabetes and osteoarthritis, all of that. And, and to be clear, I'm not making a direct link. I'm not advocating that this is science. I think there is very good evidence to suggest that many of these things may be linked at the cellular level. And based on that, if you could treat one condition and cure all those others, that would be really interesting. Be pretty exciting, right? For, For you sure. and I. Oh yeah, fascinating as we age. And interestingly enough, I did take a course on physiology of the aging process back at Berkeley. And the professor at that time was really interested in free radicals and their impact on cells and the damage to cells. So it's interesting as the science develops, obviously we learn more. So you did this partly out of your interest in actual longevity and how and right. and that area but it also is something that would ultimately maybe benefit you and others should they discover that this thing actually makes a difference yeah no question i mean i i think we all have two agendas at least one is the personal agenda and one is the you know the agenda for good and the closer those two align i think the more united we are in sort of moving forward and in this particular instance i've got a personal agenda that says not just that i want i it's funny i hear this from people i don't want to live a long time Yes, I do. I do want to live a long time, but I do want it to be a healthy long time. I don't yeah. want to be incapacitated. And those two are linked together. So um, I have a vested interest in trying to be as healthy and well as possible. And that's connected with this. I've tried to sort of adjust my lifestyle, um, do all of these things. And 
this is this is on the outer edges yeah. and if i can contribute to it and speed up the process so that maybe this becomes an actual treatment and that's definitely not going to be possible if we go with the traditional speed of right, research right. Um, but if we go at the pandemic speed of research there's some real possibility i'm there's probably some balance in there but right. so there's benefit for me and hopefully benefit for many others and you know especially for the younger generation that you know, we might start seeing things differently yeah, and you said something that it's really fascinating in that comment. You want to live a long time, but you want to live it healthy, right. which gets back to James Freeze, I think it was, and the compression morbidity, where you're saying if we can keep people from developing those first sort of chronic conditions and lead-ups to chronic conditions, then, as uh, one of my doctor friends used to say, I want to die rapidly in overtime, you know, and just hit that end and just go instead of as we see this long decline where suddenly you hit a disabled point and then you're stuck for years living this life that may not be as joyful as it could be. Yeah, and I, people that have been to some of my presentations will have seen my chart that references this very clearly. And I talk about the fun, no fun path and that long decline and in and out of hospital is definitely the no fun path. Um, I, and I, I'm gonna point to a physician friend of mine who viewed his world as, I don't care what happens, I'm going to, you know, very much slide into the end of life, martini in hand, chocolate in other, having used up their body completely. Um, you know, I don't mean to make light of death, but, you know, it, it, it's going to happen. It's part of life. It is part of life. <laughs> it's, uh, it's there. And they viewed it as that was the best way to go. Unfortunately for that individual, they did not slide in and developed cardiac disease and found themselves slowly unable to start walking up steps oh, wow. and walking up hills and has now had to go and have uh, therapy or treatment in this case putting in some stents and you know that's improved things but you know this idea that you can just run it and then that's not the way the body works mostly there are some people that that's true i think for the vast majority of us it's not and staying healthy is hard work it yeah. just is absolutely absolutely but what about you i know you're into this and you're participating tell us your experience yeah i um to, I, like you too, looked at this and I saw, as many may know or some know, my father passed away from Lewy body dementia, a form of Parkinson's. And um, a couple of, maybe um, two, a year or two after he passed away, I happened to see something on Facebook. And it said, get a genetic test for Parkinson's. And specifically, they were targeting a couple of genes they were looking for that are, in, in, that are associated with getting Parkinson's. And I said, and it was the Michael J. Fox Foundation, you know, and as many people probably know, Michael J. Fox has Parkinson's and has publicly announced it and has formed this foundation and done incredible research. So I went ahead and got the test. And sure enough, I show up with a one of the, uh, the mutations that's associated with a higher incidence. There are a couple they look at. The, some of them are really strongly associated. This one is just moderately associated with it, apparently. And then they called me and said, hey, look, we're doing this. We're doing a study. It's the PPMI the um, Parkinson's Progressive Markers Initiative. And what they're doing is they're looking for markers, biomarkers, 
would you be interested in signing up? And I said, for sure. And so I signed up and, and I've been in now, I guess, five years. And so when it first started, I fly to a clinic and they fly me there and they, it's a day and a half workup every year and then a half a day and then a half a day the other six month uh, visit and literally they do you know blood draw they do uh, dat scan mri lumbar puncture um, cognitive tests smell tests behavioral walking observing checking your muscle tone and if you have tremors and they, they originally were doing this and looking for, for both individuals that had Parkinson's or were at risk of Parkinson's to identify these. And uh, over time, they've now expanded it. And uh, it's been a really good experience for me. I've learned a lot. I've uh, been able to feel like I'm doing something to help people. And um, I'm now actually on their participant committee. And uh, we have a committee, a small group of the participants who are helping them think through what's it like to be a participant? How can we help get other people involved? And they've expanded the study now. I think they have 52 sites around the world. They just opened Lagos, Nigeria, uh, with the first site in Africa. And I think they recruited their first couple of patients two months ago or so. And um, they've now got an online study. They're trying to get 100,000 people into that and uh, another study. And they're sort of setting up this funnel that will help get people in. And as they identify something, oh, you should be in the next level. You should be in the next level. So it's been a really uh, a good experience. Um, I don't get the data from the study, although we had some discussions about that at the annual meeting that maybe they could say, here's what this shows. Um, but so far, according to the folks, I've been doing fine. So I think it's... You know, it's interesting hearing that because one of the reasons that I jumped into this, you know, and it was personal, but also contributory, but uh, there was some value in accruing my own data because I'm, you know, something of a wearables monitoring, you know, as much data as possible to see what's in there. And I do get my data. That was a, an important part. And you just described a bunch of things that, you know, supremely interesting. You've got five years of sequence data that's, you know, consistent. Um, I'm a little bit surprised to hear that they're not. Is there a reason for well, it? Some of it, it's interesting because, and actually the study started in 2010. So they've got some really long-term, and the other very unique thing about this is that the, every single data set is available to any scientist. You have to obviously mm. meet the requirements mm. and you can download it, whether it's the imaging scans or mm -hmm. the others, and they've added uh, data points and things over time. Um, there's some concerns. Some people say, I don't want to know. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Our guest is colleague and a transformational voice for innovation that matters via incrementalism, Dr. Nick Vander Hayden, aka Dr. Nick. You know, right, but that's um, okay. And you can others, say that, but right, you haven't said that. Have and you? that's what we sort of talked about was we probably should look in the study of individualizing it. And maybe perhaps at each visit you ask the person, would you like to know? Would you not like to know? I've talked to a number of people more recently who either have a family member or a close friend who has Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's and they and uh, or their family member did. And they say one of them said, I absolutely will not join a study like that because I don't want to know I have the gene or the potential genes, whereas others have said, yes, I do want to know. And it really raises some interesting questions because at this point, there's not a lot you can do about having Parkinson's. And so. Um, a lot of people would be would be fearful to know. Now, in my case, I'd probably say I would like to know just so I can plan better, mm. so I can inform my family, which is what my father did. 
he actually hid it for two years from my mother. And another another health story. So my mother found out because my father got a denial for a med in the mail. And she opened it and said, what the heck is this denial for this med for? And then he t- he told her and uh, and he lived for about another um, almost almost 20 years with it after that. But he made very clear it allowed him also because he had it. He knew here's what's going to happen to me. Here's how to plan for that appropriately. Here's how I'd like this to be handled. And uh, and that helped a lot. It really did. So I, I think in your case, and, and, you know, this is interesting discussion about trial specifically and, you know, helping people think through, is this something that you want to and so forth. In your particular trial, I guess I, I would sort of categorize it. And, and it doesn't, it's not quite Huntingdon's career as an example, which for those of you that don't know, maybe you watch uh, House, that was uh, the, I think her, her, she was number seven or something, the, the, the physician, and she had a historic family history and it's passed through family history. And it is absolutely terminal. Uh, I sort of, I, I want to say 40s, 50s, if I get this wrong, forgive me, it's, you know, uh, access data, but she declined or did not want to and ultimately came to know. And, you know, when it's that severe, there's clearly some issues. And I think that was one of the reasons that 23andMe got into trouble when they said, here, test your genes. Yeah. Oh my God, well, wait, I've got Huntington's career. And I wasn't ready. So there's definitely that. But I think in your instance, as you described, this is not a definitive. This is a... Right. It's a relative risk. Increased risk. Yeah. Essentially. And it's also... And so I think about this, and that's one of the reasons why it can be difficult, because people, as we've learned with COVID, don't have a good understanding of risk. Relative risk. And, uh, (laughs) And so, you know, I looked at it and said, oh, well, it goes from X to Y. That's bigger, you know. I'll be I'll be okay with it, um, with the with the testing for the genes. I think I should point out maybe that, and you could probably define this better than I can. But I'm not really in a clinical trial. I'm in a study, right? Because they're not testing any meds on me or mm. stuff like that, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah, I, I yes, I I think a, a differentiation. So that's you know actual therapy. It's a monitoring. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's the same impact of that, right? Yeah, and what, what's and I, what I loved is I went to the first annual conference and they're discovering stuff. So one of the new things That's you'll appreciate cool. this. One of the guys came up and said, "Look, there's a huge link between the microbiome. Mm. We should be studying. We should add the microbiome to this study and begin to get fecal data of of what's right. going on." And the, and he presented on the difficulties. And I learned quite a bit listening to his presentation about the fact that. It's tough to compare microbiome because they're different geographically. Oh, yeah. Depending on people. Yeah. So if you have people in Seattle in your study and you have people in New right. York, you're, they're going to have different microbiomes. And, but, but they're going to begin to figure out a way to look at that as well and add that data. And I think the more data they can find, they are beginning to identify some things in the spinal fluid, as you would imagine, and stuff. And I think the DAT scans will allow them to begin to say, hey, we can pick this up earlier. We can pick it up earlier. Maybe we know what some of the triggers are. Maybe we can start to work against the triggers and all that stuff. It, it raises the issue, you know, that geographic differences in the microbiome is so important. And that's true through the U.S., but, you know, worldwide, worldwide. we see it. And I, I'm, you know, not not to make light of it, but I think it's also part of the reason that New York pizza tastes different <laughs> because the construct of that pizza with the flat, I mean, very simple ingredients, but they are actually different. 
And our challenge has been historically that we could not define or get to that detail because we couldn't sequence fast enough. But we're now at this rapid sequencing. It's relatively, I mean, we've seen that decline. Everybody showed the chart for years, you know, from the million dollars for the genome down to, you know, sub 1,000. I think it's, you know, even less. And it depends on whether it's a partial genome, exome, so forth. That raises some huge interesting questions and you know can we start to gather this and what will it mean don't know but you know it's a good example of why trials are so important and absolutely the participation yeah and you know assess the risk you've got to take those um, individual decisions i've made some very clear sort of thoughtful process monitoring and so forth i'm not jumping into it without that, and you clearly have done the same thing. I think that how I would sort of try and steer people is think about what you're looking, A, to get out of it. You know, what's, is it just I want to contribute? And that's a good thing. I think actually, you know, giving away a present is better than receiving it. This is the sure. same kind of thing, so it's going to be good for your general overall health, I, I, oh, I yeah. think. There's obviously going to be some potential downside, so weighing up that. Um, and then think about it, I think, you know, as you described, for you, it's a personal interest. It's driven by your family, your father. Um, you know, you want to see this both potentially for yourself, potentially for your family. Um, and, you know, that's a good and for thing. anybody. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, clearly, exactly it's, like it's, not, it's not just, but, you know, it's the marrying of those things. And that's the same for me. I yeah. think having that personal drive helps. And, you know, that's partially driven by me because my father had cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. was oblivious to it. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't oblivious. but I, So I'm driven. So I think, you know, what I would hope is people are listening to this and going, well, uh, there's positive. Has there been downsides? Well, I'll tell you when I had my medical school experience, I had a drug that was designed for nerve, I think it was nerve regeneration. And I got um, what I can only call ataxia. I was falling over when I got out of bed. Wow. I had severe nystagmus. My eyes were you know, flicking backwards and forwards. By the way, those of you that don't know, that's one of the tests for drunkenness, You know, the sobriety tests that police do. I had that severely and it was a little bit concerning, um, but you know, it resolved and you know, and the same with subsequent. So I, it, it's not without risk. Don't jump into this. But it's the contribution to humanity. And if we learned one thing in the pandemic, I, I wanted to get off the bench and participate. For sure. You were trying every way you could. I was directing traffic <laughs> at, at, at vaccine, uh, t or not vaccine, testing centers because yeah. I wasn't qualified to actually deliver a test. Right. It's a, And... And I think, if anything, COVID showed the importance of being involved. All of the people who were involved in those um, trials for the vaccines, right? You know, to test them out exactly. early. Exactly. And um, and I would say the I same. I volunteered for that. Did you? I I did not. I Interesting did. enough. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I know that there. Were, I saw some places show up later in Jacksonville. Yeah, there was one locally in Hopkins. But um, I did not. That's a, a great point. I remember you talking about mm -hmm. that. And I think, as you point out, people should. Think about this may be not for you. It really, I mean, mm -hmm. it's a different right. thing. But if it's of any kind of interest, take a look. Look at an area that 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 is of interest to you or importance to you. 
I know that I posted this up on LinkedIn and some person I'd never met wrote back and said, I signed up. You That's know? very cool. And there are a couple, I know about five people now that have signed up through, through hearing about it. And, um, Hopefully this study or any other study makes a difference. And that's, I think, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do. So, you know, for each person out there, if it looks like it's something you're interested in, explore it a little bit. Check it out. may not be Parkinson's, maybe asthma, maybe something else um, like you've done with this longevity. I think that's an important area. If, it'd be great to see stuff that would help me or others as we try to have a healthy life through the remainder of it. So, yeah, stuff. For, for, for the proportion of the population that wants to live longer and healthier, Woohoo! For those of you that are saying no, well, probably not going to be interested. Now, please explain to me why that's the case. I don't fully understand, but that's okay. So, are there any other areas you think might be of interest to you as you look at this? Or? As I think about trials yeah. and clinical, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, you brought up one of them, the biome, I think, is this undiscovered territory that, you know, I know personally my biome has huge impacts on my overall general well-being. I can feel it. And, you know, we've gone through this process of giving people, you take an antibiotic for a sore throat, you wipe out billions of bacteria in your gut. And we had no idea what that was doing. I, I think that's a, you know, fantastic place. Of course, it's poop, so nobody wants to get involved in that. Oh, I don't care. I think there's tremendous opportunity in gathering that data. So that's one. I think obviously health and fitness, wellness, you know, exercise. I see lots of work and, you know, people advocating high intensity workouts. Have you seen this concept of restricting blood flow? That seems really weird as a value to that. I, I just don't know, but I'd love to see more of that. I'm, I'm all in. If I can participate and contribute, I love doing this kind of thing because that's me. Yeah, no, it's it's really fantastic, and I think hopefully, as we talked about, it, it it leads to something, and I think most of them will, whether it proves that something didn't work, you know. That's right. Day. Yeah, it's not just about the success; it's also about the failures, and that's one of the things that you should look for in the trials to make sure that they're publishing the data. It's part of trial. Is it clinicaltrials.gov? I think is the, mm -hmm. as long as it's registered there, it's a proper registered trial because. This idea of not, oh, it didn't work, so let's just bury that data is a really bad thing because then somebody right. else may repeat it, let alone the fact that and we what a waste that failed is. to learn <laughs> from all of that data. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks so much again, Nick. It's always wonderful to get you on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks to uh, you for participating in the trial, and hopefully this encourages some of the folks that uh, listen to your show to think about it, look at uh, what's going on in your world. Absolutely. And back to you, Greg. And that is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and our special guest, Dr. Nick Vanderhaden, principal in the Washington, D.C. office of ECG Management Consultants and a popular voice in the Healthcare Now radio lineup of hosts. For more information about Dr. Nick's work, go to www.incrementalhealthcare.com and do follow his work on Twitter via at D-R-N-I-C and the number one, Dr. Nick, and at E-C-G-M-C, respectively. 
And finally, if you're enjoying our work at Pop Health Week, please like the show on the podcast platform of your choice, share with your colleagues, and do consider subscribing to keep up with new episodes as they're released. We stream live on Healthcare Now Radio weekdays at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for you left coasters, 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For Pop Health Week, my co-host Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe everyone. Bye now.